and welcome to the 12th episode of Outside the Screen, a podcast all about screens in the lives of children and families. I'm law professor and child rights advocate Liz Hansley. And I'm child psychiatrist and stand-up comic Dr. Kim Lee. We're bringing you the podcast because we know just how hard it is to raise kids in a world full of screens and we want to help. So what have we got lined up for this episode today? Today we're going to be hearing a review of Mr. Peabody and Sherman, which I love because that was a cartoon that I used to watch as a child and it was one of my favourites. And we'll be unpicking the new social media code of conduct. But first up, we've got Paper Round, our regular segment where we look at the research that's coming out, help demystify it to help inform your family's decisions about how you engage with screens. Today we're discussing some research from Monash University about how parents' own use of their phones whilst driving can affect the children also in the car. So if you're like me, driving around with your two-year-old in the back, this one's for you. So stay tuned. As Kim said, today in Paper Round, we're looking at some research from Monash University about parents who use their phones while driving their kids. Yes, we're going to go there. But the research might not be. What do you think? Kim, why'd they do this research? Well, on South Road, they have a camera that can take a photo of you on your phone. And I know exactly where that is because I use that. It goes near Theverdon Oval. And I'm always two hands on the steering wheel and uh, I don't want to get however many hundreds of dollars find. It's, it's illegal, guys. Yeah. Remember that, it's illegal. And we're not going to think about what you might do at other places where there's no camera, but keep going. Yeah. Essentially, I feel personally attacked by this uh, paper <laughs> because the average age was a 40-year-old parent of young children and they essentially surveyed 510 of us, me and my peers, <laughs> and they asked us about our behaviours and... Look, there is going to be some bias, right? We, we, we don't want to willingly dob ourselves in. But most people said, yeah, I'm pretty good. 80, 85% of us don't use our phones whilst driving. Don't check social media. Don't write text messages. However, a quarter of us still admit that we will check the phone if it's mm. beeping, ringing, text comes in, mm. do hands-free, whatever, mm-hmm. and check. And little Johnny or little Emily sitting in the back sees us doing that. Mm. And essentially the researchers are making the connection between the parents' behavior, role modeling for younger kids. And when they become 16, 17, get their L's and P's, Mm -hmm. whether they're going to pick up those behaviors and copy the parents' behaviors. Well, I've certainly heard there's been plenty of research in the past about alcohol and about how, you know, seeing your parents drinking alcohol growing up makes you more likely to like a drop when you get to that age or even before you get to that age. So we all know that kids grow up copying what their parents do. And sometimes they rebel against what their parents do, obviously. Like, for example, my partner's mother was a big smoker and he's just never, ever smoked because, you know, he hated having her smoke around him as a child. So it can go the other way, but it does seem pretty pretty common sense, doesn't it, that if you're going to use your phone in the car while kids are growing up, then they're going to think that's normal. But I can understand how people might become you know, someone who uses the phone in the car because you might have one situation where there's a, a really big important thing happening and like you just have to do it and it's, you know, it's worth running the risk of getting caught or having an accident even. And then once you've done it once, you've kind of broken the seal, haven't you, mm. and, and you keep doing it. So you know, that, 
that's a big challenge too, I think, to just sort of keep reminding people that, you know, even though you did it once and it was all right, doesn't mean it's going to be okay in the future. And that's a huge challenge in our society. Anyway, you said they surveyed 501 parents of young kids. Yeah, 500 odd parents. So decent sample size, yeah. And what did they find? Well, they, they found essentially that, like what you described, that it, it normalises the behaviour, whether it's to yourself, to your partner, but most importantly to our kids. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, was there anything surprising about the finding? Like, Did it fit well with what you already knew? Or Yeah, the surprising yeah. finding is that they compared the different age groups of parents. So you got your, mm-hmm. your 18, 20-odd-year-old parents, mm-hmm. your 30s, and then, you know, your 40 year old parents mm-hmm. which group do you think were the worst do you think liz <laughs> well the fact you're asking me makes me think it was probably the older ones but you know your your intuition would say it would be the younger ones but yeah possibly the older ones yeah the best yeah. were actually the younger ones huh. because they're more likely to receive the education about it right. just come out of school yeah all these messages mm-hmm. to reinforce okay using your phone bad yeah staying right. Focus on the road and the car in front of you, good. Yeah. Whereas the 30-year-olds were, I think, about three times more likely to break Mm. rules. Yeah, because they would have grown up as drivers in a time when, you know, we hadn't had as many horrible accidents and there wasn't as much, you know, propaganda, for want of a better word, out there. Um, or, you know, public education campaigns about that Mm. kind of thing. Uh, Well, that's nice if it shows that those public education campaigns worked. Yeah. But it also tells us where we need to be directing those (laughs) public education campaigns now. And then there are people like me who are in their 40s who grew up with the old brick phones, the little Nokias, and you Mm -hmm. had to use both fingers and, you know, pay attention. And and you actually, but nowadays it's like swiping and Mm, whatnot. Yeah, that's right. Well, you know, I'm quite a bit older again and and I started driving at a time when nobody had a phone so you just get used to doing it that way and um, and I suppose I was just, you know, never got into that habit of using the phone while I was driving and the last five or six years I've had a car with Bluetooth. So, you know, my texts come through on the Bluetooth and I can just press a button on the console and it reads it out for me. And so I guess, you know, being of an age where you can afford that kind of car helps a lot. And uh, yeah, hopefully more and more younger people will be just driving around with the technology where they don't need to look at their phone. So this, you know, might all resolve itself. This issue, but or meanwhile, get a mm. Tesla which is self-driving. There you go. You can play video games whilst driving. <laughs> no, don't do that. Problem solved. Okay, right. Um, so, any reservations about the finding or about the study, apart from the fact it was personally attacking you? Of course, we'll take due notice of that. They use this term called nomophobia. Have you heard of this before? I have, but yeah, let's talk about it. Very yeah, essentially it's a fear of not being with your phone. And mm-hmm. I just find the word nomophobia just a, a weird word. I was looking at it today with my cursor just a little bit over the N and I thought it was talking about homophobia. Oh. And I think, why are they talking about homophobia here? So yeah, let's be very clear. It's nomophobia as in no mobile phobia. So phobia of not having your mobile. I recently acquired a, a digital watch and it talks to my phone constantly, obviously, and it, it gets nomophobia because if I get out of range from my phone, it beeps. <laughs> and I find that one of the most annoying things of any technology I've ever <laughs> encountered. But it's funny because at the same time, I, like I thought about turning it off, 
And then I realised, no, it actually is quite helpful because if you're leaving the house and you've forgotten your phone, it tells you, and that's a good thing to know and so on. So, you know, I like to think I'm not somebody who has nomophobia, but I'm happy for my watch to have it. <laughs> All right, so um, it's a pretty obvious question. How will this inform parenting or caring for children? Don't touch the phone. <laughs> <laughs> yes, if, if you plan to be on the phone, don't drive or, yeah, um, it's... Not always easy to do, but we can always try that little bit harder to get closer to the goal, can't we? And what about in your practice as a psychiatrist? Is it going to come in in any way there or what do you think? The message that I would have is that role modelling is really important. Right. And kids tell me all the time, but yeah, mum and dad, they're always mm. on their phone at the dinner table. Yeah. Yeah. We, we really have to uh, look in our own backyard sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and that is something that you often have occasion to yes. raise with parents? Yeah, often. so this is just another part of that conversation, I guess. Radio, well, thanks for that, and we'll move on to the next segment. Well, there were a few pretty interesting confessions from both of us there. So, yeah, listen again if you want to find out more. The paper was by Sian Koppel, Farid Kaviani, Sujani Paris, Haley MacDonald and Mark Zonfrillo. And the title is Key Factors Associated with Parents' Illegal Engagement with Their Smartphones While Driving Their Children. It was published in a journal called Accident Analysis and Prevention. Full details in the show notes. And now it's time for our movie review. And Stuart is going to tell us why Mr Peabody and Sherman is recommended for ages 11 and up. Hi. I'm Stuart Bulk, and I'm here with some information from the CMA review of Mr. Peabody and Sherman. I'll tell you what the movie is about, what elements led the reviewers to recommend the film for children 11 and up, with parental guidance from 5 to 10, as well as some suggestions for things in the movie you might want to discuss with your kids. Mr. Peabody and Sherman is an animated comedy about Mr. Peabody, a dog who has dedicated himself to the pursuit of knowledge and a variety of advanced scientific inventions, including the creation of a time machine. Mr Peabody has adopted a boy named Sherman as a son and apprentice. Together, they travel through time visiting an array of famous historical figures and getting into considerable trouble along the way. At school, Sherman gets into an argument with a girl called Penny, who bullies Sherman about his father being a dog and Sherman apparently bites Penny on the arm. As a consequence, Mr Peabody's fitness to be a father comes under scrutiny by Mrs Grunion from Social Services, who has a particular problem with the idea of a dog being the father of a boy. While Mr Peabody is trying to sort matters out with Miss Grunion and Penny's parents, Penny and Sherman are left to their own devices, and she persuades him to take her time travelling. However, things take a turn for the worse during a stay in ancient Egypt when Penny is captured and almost married off to King Tutankhamun. Although Sherman manages to save her, the excessive use of the time machine tears a hole in the space-time continuum. People from every era are torn from their homes and begin bleeding through the gap. Mr Peabody and Sherman now have to work together to save the world from imminent collapse. At the same time, the dangerous journey enables Mr Peabody to learn how to be a good parent and helps Sherman discover what it means to be a good son. There is some violence in the film, including a physical fight between Sherman and Penny and historical scenes involving things like guillotines and Greek soldiers with swords. 
Children under five may be scared or disturbed by Egyptian statues of snakes with large fangs, mummified bodies and a creepy one-armed robot child. These images might be troubling to older children as well. Mr Peabody and Sherman is a heartwarming story about a dog trying to be a parent and a young boy trying to grow up. Although Sherman has always followed the rules his adoptive father has set in place for him, he wants to be independent and explore the world on his own. While he initially rebels, Sherman and his father come to find a peaceful middle ground of respect and admiration for each other's own personal identity. While Mr Peabody has had trouble expressing emotion throughout the course of his life, he learns that it's okay to tell his son that he loves him and to show affection in the way he has always wanted to be able to. Values in this movie that parents may wish to reinforce with their children include Mr Peabody tells Sherman that every great relationship starts from a place of conflict and evolves into something richer. If you don't like a person, it's quite often because they remind you of something you don't like about yourself. Self-reflection is therefore crucial. Having another person believe in you can help you to believe in yourself. Parents may also wish to discuss the negative and limited roles the film gives to female characters. Penny is for the most part presented as a selfish, manipulating and unlikable bully. Mr Peabody and Sherman is available on a number of different streaming services and the CMA reviewers recommend it for children 11 and up. Parental guidance for 5 to 10. For children under 5, best to find another movie. There's a more detailed review of this plus hundreds of other movies on the CMA website. And when Stuart talks about the CMA website, that's www.childrenandmedia.org.au. You can find the reviews by clicking on the Movie Reviews tab, then you can sort the list or search by title alphabetically, by age suitability, by classification or by date added. All of the reviews are prepared by people with training in child development and they cover every G and PG title released in Australian cinemas since 2002, as well as selected M-rated movies and some pre-2002 ones that are available on streaming services. The website also has reviews of game style apps and apps that may appeal to young children. Again, it's www.childrenandmedia.org.au. You might also like to join the CMA Facebook community, facebook.com forward slash Australian Council on Children and the Media, all one word. More details later on about how to keep in touch and give feedback. And now it's time for our policy development of the day, and Liz is going to take us through the recent industry code of practice for social media services. So Liz, how did Australia come to have a social media services code? Well, there's a bit of a saga behind it, so strap in. It's an arrangement that was foreshadowed in the Online Safety Act in 2021. That's a piece of Commonwealth legislation. It's similar to the broadcasting co-regulation system, which means that the government asks industry to draw up a code itself, then it registers the code, and that registration has certain legal consequences. Now, in this case, a few different industry groups got together to form a steering group to draft a number of different codes for different parts of the online services industry as part of this scheme. And so what we're talking about is the social media services code, but there's a bunch of other ones for different parts of the online industry. So you're saying that we're asking the Facebooks of the world, the Instagrams of the world to write their own code? Yep. That's mm. basically how it works. It's not quite the same thing as like, for example, with advertising in Australia, they write their own code and then they administer it themselves. Here they are working with the government and, and ultimately you know, the government will be a backstop. 
and something that's worth noting is that a couple of the codes that this group drew up, the government knocked back and they said, no, they don't provide enough safeguards. So it is a little bit more than just self-regulation. The government is playing a role here. But yes, they're the ones who get the ball rolling. They say, this is the code we'd like to have. And then the government gets to say yes or no to it. Yeah, I kind of like that approach. What are the advantages of a co-regulatory approach? Well, it depends what you compare it to and whose perspective you're looking from. So from an industry perspective, it's better to draw up your own rules rather than have the government do it for you. That seems pretty obvious. You know your business better, what's possible, what's feasible, what's not. But it's also bound to be a lighter touch than what the government might come up with. From a consumer perspective, better than no regulation at all or straight industry regulation like we were just discussing. It does involve having the government as an independent backstop, but it's still an element of the fox guarding the chicken coop, if you like. And in my experience, co-regulatory systems and rules do tend to be very complex, which is a problem if you're relying on ordinary consumers to pipe up and complain about breaches, if the system is just very, very hard to navigate and very hard to work out. Now, it's also worth noting that not everything in the Act is up for co-regulation. For example, cyberbullying of children, cyber abuse of adults and unauthorised sharing of what they call intimate images. They're all regulated directly by the eSafety Commissioner. So it's just this stuff about content that is being co-regulated in this way. Mm, interesting. It just reminds me of this TV show on the ABC. It's called Teenage Boss. Oh, yeah. Have you seen this? <laughs> I think I need to. Yeah, it's hilarious. It's, it's essentially you, you hand over the family's budget to the kids and they get to do all the shopping. All the, it's hilarious. How but, does it go? Uh, well, my nephew was actually on this show. So oh, I yeah? could see my, uh, my sister-in-law and their family. And uh, the funny thing in, in their segment was, you know, he bought like a bunch of garlic for like 30 bucks <laughs> and just got ripped off and just didn't realize that, you know, he just needed a little bit of garlic for this recipe, but just bought like... Yeah, the most expensive it. stuff. Oh, that's so great. It's just a, a beautiful lesson. You know, 30 bucks, it's not the end of the world. But the bigger lesson that you can draw from that about, well, you know, read the recipe before you go shopping sort of thing. Yeah. It's wonderful. Oh, that or ask really your good. grandma whether she's got any garlic lying around. Yeah. <laughs> yes. All right. So what happens if the industry doesn't bother to draw up a code or the government doesn't think what they've produced is good enough? Well, in either case, the government can and will draw up a standard, which is just a word for delegated legislation, and listeners are probably familiar with that idea. There have already been two codes knocked back, as I said, because the eSafety Commissioner didn't think they provided appropriate community safeguards. So we will have industry standards rather than codes on those things, which are the relevant electronic services and the designated internet services. They'll be regulated directly by the eSafety Commissioner. Sounds riveting. <laughs> what difference does it make if we have a code or a standard? Well, one major difference is that if you breach a code, you get a notice to comply. And then if you disobey the notice, then you can be fined. With a standard, there's no notice. You can be fined directly for failure to comply. So industry has a definite incentive to get a code registered because it's lighter touch regulation. Mm. You say that co-regulatory regimes tend to be complex. Is that true of this one? Yes, in a word, yes. First, you have the 200-page Act, though in fairness, only a few pages lead into this code-making exercise once you find them. Then there's a head terms document 
that defines things and lays foundation for a lot of what's covered in the codes. Then there are the individual codes. And remember, we're, we're just looking at the social media one here, but there are six others for different kinds of providers. So already you've got the need to hop back and forth between different documents if you want to figure out what's going on. And that's challenging for me, and I'm a professor of law. I think if you didn't have my level of um, expertise and experience with these things, it could really do your head in. Plus, there are a couple of other documents that are really necessary to make sense of it all. One is a position paper that the commissioner put out, which is 86 pages, and an explanatory memorandum by the industry body, which is 10 pages. And that's actually probably the most informative thing of all, that short 10-page document. So, yeah, pretty complex. What does this code actually cover? Well, it covers things called Category 1A and Category 1B content. Now, to understand what this means, you have to go back to the National Classification Scheme and the classification of RC, which means refused classification. So if you make a movie and you send it to be classified, they might give it G, they might give it PG, blah, 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 but they can give it RC. A very few things get that every year, you know, just a handful every year, but things that are refused classification, which applies to stuff that's just so bad that the government thinks nobody should be able to see it. It includes things like sexual violence and material that instructs in matters of crime or violence. Now, the Online Safety Act picks up that concept and says anything that's been refused classification or would be refused classification if it went through the process is Category 1. There's also Category 2, which is basically X18 plus and R18 plus content. X18 plus is non-violent sexually explicit material and R18 plus is, well, I think people probably know what that is. But anyway, the industry codes aren't up to that category yet. In fact, they don't even cover all Category 1 content. The kinds of content that are covered are child sexual exploitation material, pro-terror material, and extreme crime and violence material. That's Category 1A. And then Category 1B is crime and violence material and drug-related material. That leaves 1C, which is certain kinds of online pornography, which is going to be picked up somewhere down the track. Now, it's worth noting that the commissioner can go straight in and issue a removal notice for this kind of content based on her powers under the Act. So the industry code really just builds more detailed rules on top of that. So it's not like those things are completely unregulated at the moment. They just don't have that extra layer of industry regulation. And what do the industry rules actually require? This is where it gets really complex. There's three tiers of social media service with tier one being the highest risk and the biggest services. And then there's a different combination of minimum compliance measures for each tier. There's three measures that are common to all tiers. They all have to notify appropriate entities about any class 1A material that turns up on their services. They all have to do safety by design assessments when certain things happen, won't go into that now. And then there's a third measure that just refers back to the one about safety by design. So really two measures. Then there's another 16 measures that the tier two services have to take and another 28, I think, on top of the original three that apply to tier three. You still with me? No, lost me. <laughs> but very important, very important. <laughs> well, I think if we come away from this knowing that it's really complex, we've made a start because okay. it is very complex. Well, I'm yeah. glad we have a lawyer on this podcast. So. <laughs> Yeah, I'm the one who brought it here, but yeah, I'm yes. here. Yes, yes. Um, so what kind of things do the minimum compliance measures include? 
Well, I'll talk about tier one since those are the services we're probably most concerned about, the ones with the riskiest functionalities and the most subscribers. But a lot of these apply to tier two as well. They have to have systems, processes and technologies for enforcing their policies, prohibiting class 1A material, and they have to enforce those policies as well as any age restrictions concerning use of their service by children. They have to make sure they have enough resources and personnel to fulfil these functions. They have to have safety by design features and settings in place, not just do a review if something changes. They also have to protect quote, young children, which means children under 16, by means of default settings relating to contact from strangers and geolocation. Putting some default settings in is is a good thing, I think. Um, That will solve a lot of problems before they can happen. They're required to use technology to detect and remove child sexual exploitation material and also certain types of proterra material. And they're supposed to disrupt and deter the posting of Category 1A content. There are separate measures relating to Category 1B content, which are less proactive, and a raft of measures that you might think of as further removed from the actual content, like providing information, participating in discussion, complaints handling, that kind of thing. Well, I think, yeah, this is very important to detect and remove very harmful materials. Yeah, yeah, it is. So what advice would you have for families or children's professionals who would like to complain about something? Well, I would suggest starting with the explanatory memorandum and then moving on to the head terms and then schedule one, which is the document that contains the actual rules for social media services. We'll put links to all of these in the show notes. Now, don't be too daunted as it's often easier to make sense of things when you have a particular issue in mind. So if you've seen a particular thing in a particular place, then you know what you're looking for. So if it's a particular question that you've got, shouldn't be too bad. Just be prepared to take some notes and concentrate if you want to work your way through all these documents. One final thing, it's worth complaining. It's always worth complaining if you see something that you're not happy about, even if you're not sure there's actually been a breach of anything because bodies like this need to know what the public is concerned about and this is one way they can find out. It's so many times I've heard an industry body will say, well, we haven't received any complaints about this, therefore we think it's okay. If they had received complaints, then they wouldn't be able to say that. So don't hold back. Otherwise, if you don't want to navigate all the different documents I mentioned earlier, get in touch with CMA and let us know what your problem is, then we should be able to help you. Mm. Yeah, thanks for that. Because can I give you an example of a question that I was asked today by a wellbeing teacher? Essentially, they're saying, look, we're getting kids who are using apps that are 13+. plus." There are only nine or ten mm-hmm. parents don't do anything about it. Does this apply to this kind of framework, do you think? Well, no, and here's why. Because this framework only works at the highest end of the classification system. It only applies to the RC. The end. Yeah, to RC, like really rotten mm. you know, stuff that they think nobody, not even an adult, should be able to see. X18 plus and R18 plus. And, yeah. and so they, they have nothing to say about what goes on with G, PG, etc. And what you just said was really interesting in that I think you said that the person you were talking to was concerned about kids under 13 accessing stuff that's for 13-year-olds or that's categorised or classified for 13-year-olds. That would have to be an American classification they're talking about there because the Australian classification system doesn't say anything at all about 13 So there's obviously some kind of slippage there as well, that there's stuff that this child is accessing stuff that hasn't even been through the classification system in Australia in any way. 
So, you know, how can we manage that? We'd come back to, well, you know, what are they doing in the US? And, and they are doing some interesting stuff in the US regarding privacy anyway. Classification, you know, might be a bridge further along, but, um, you know, we certainly need to keep the conversation going about that. Thanks. Pleasure as always. Well, that's all we have time for today. Yes, that's a wrap for episode 12. We'd really love to have your feedback, so please get in touch either through our Facebook page or you can email us at outsidethescreenpod at gmail.com. You can also catch up on all things gaming disorder related on my website, cgiclinic.com, or even book a telehealth appointment with me. Or if you really like us, you can help by becoming a subscriber on Substack. Details are in the show notes, along with a range of further info about the things we've been discussing. And finally, you can rate and review us on your listening platform to make it easier for others to find us. 